This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, back from the holidays. Luckily, nothing happened when I was away, so everything is totally fine. Uh, coming up on today's episode, first day back of the new term in Westminster, we look ahead to what is in store for uh, the naughty boy, Boris Johnson, who's very much already in detention. We'll speak to Lucy Fisher and uh, we'll crunch the numbers on the electoral maths with uh, Professor Sir John Curtis. That's coming up in our big thing on the podcast. First, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. And on a Tuesday, it must be... Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Oh, it feels like it's been ages since we've been back together again in the studio. I've got Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. I'm beaming in uh, David Aronovich. Morning, David. Morning. We had that nice Luke Jones last week. It was nice, actually, David. You're right. Because Matt keeps saying they're back, but it's actually him that's back, really, isn't it? Well, exactly. I've had one week off since the beginning. This is my first holiday since Christmas. <laughs> and now he's complaining. You pair, you, now he's complaining. You pair have been off and on and off and on. We had lovely Oliver Cam in. I thought, I, I, I thought Oliver Cam was very good. <laughs> we liked him, didn't we, David? <laughs> yeah, Luke Jones and Oliver Cam will make a good pairing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get, the, uh, we'll get the, uh, the jingle people onto that immediately. Um, uh, right, let's talk about the thing which half half the country wants to talk about, the other half about to text in and say, why are you talking about that again? Uh, the, the contortions of what's going on in Boris Johnson's head and those trying to defend him ahead of his statement later on, uh, David. Yeah, uh, the thing that was interesting to me about uh, about this was was I was listening to uh, Brandon Lewis, who I believe... What is he, Dan? Is he chairman or something? Northern Ireland Secretary. No, he's, no he was chairman. He's not... Yeah. Uh, he was chairman, and now he's Northern Ireland Secretary. And in his capacity as not being Northern Ireland Secretary, he was on everything this morning. He, it was, he, he, he was the kind of... Uh, Danny, sorry to interrupt myself again, but <laughs> what do you call the person who's given the job um, of going the out The Minister of the Day, day? actually. Yeah. yeah. Minister of the Day, OK. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Minister of the Day. Like thought for the day, or soup of the day, and so on. <laughs> um, yeah, OK, the, mini, the Ministre du Jour 
Um, anyway, was, dish of the was da- dish of the comes- day, Brandon Lewis. Dish of the day, Brandon Lewis, and, and, and he was served up on the Today <laughs> program and on everything and on everything else. And essentially, he has to say something with utter conviction, which is that Boris Johnson didn't believe that he'd done anything wrong, and that he's apologising for being fined by the police, but not for having done anything wrong because he doesn't believe he's done anything wrong. And it's a a, a viewpoint which is so preposterous, uh, etc. But I found myself, there was a moment I had that he was saying it with such kind of uh, authority and conviction that there was a terrible moment I thought to myself, oh, maybe I've got this wrong. Maybe Maybe he does think that. And I actually it t- I had to take myself in hand, and I don't use that in a horrible way, um, <laughs> in order to say to myself, come on, David. And then I was thinking, there is something about the act of stating an absurdity with sufficient authority that you can actually create momentary doubt. And then I realised, of course, it's not about whether I feel doubt about it or not. It's about whether Conservative MPs think they've got a position to retreat to. It's a fascinating uh, and so on. It's a fascinating thing, David, because uh, you're quite right. That is what one goes through as a listener. The even more fascinating thing is that that's what Brandon Lewis has almost certainly gone through before doing it. And uh, (laughs) one of the reasons he has authority like that is that he'll have come to believe it. One of the things that really interested me, I had conversations with Conservative MPs at the beginning of this, uh, who were very shaky about whether Boris Johnson should stay. And then the consensus inside the party began to shift, partly because of Ukraine, partly because the time had expired. And now these particular MPs are very confidently rebutting my argument that um, it's completely proportionate for him to stand down with arguments that they clearly believed. And they said it with a degree of authority, which actually, in fact, exactly as you said, David, I did find myself having to argue positions which, uh, you know, a month or six weeks ago, everyone accepted. Um, so, uh, yes, cognitive dissonance is a very, very strong thing. You, you, one of the few things, one of the things I'm very sorry about once in politics was one of my uh, ministers that I work for, Brian Mawinney, I, I like very much and, and admired very much. And he went on um, the radio and uh, gave an interview and I missed it. And when he came into the office, he said, uh, how do you think I did, Danny? And I hadn't heard it. And I was momentarily thrown, and I said, I really regret this, and that's a terrible thing to have done. I said, uh, it was great. <laughs> because I, I didn't want to say I wasn't listening, you know, I'm your director of research, I wasn't listening to the day programme. Um, uh, and um, the thing is, it had been a total disaster. <laughs> He's got into an argument with Sue McGregor, I think, and, um, and everyone thought he was in the wrong on it. Uh, Except for me, because I'd actually... And I'd begun to then convince myself that perhaps it hadn't been a disaster when it obviously had. So I've been through this process myself. The interesting thing, um, David, about being the dish of the day, the minister who served up to go around all of the... You know, they're on Times Radio and then Sky News and BBC Breakfast and the Today programme and LBC and everything else besides, is the evolution, even the, 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 the dish of the day minister goes through. So he was talking about, oh, it's just like a parking fine. I think, on Times Radio and Sky News. And by the time he got to BBC Breakfast, he said, I'm not equating it at all with the parking fire. But that is well, literally what he just spent the past hour doing. The, 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 well, he, I, even his own contortions sort of happened yeah, in real heard, time. Now, I, heard, I, I think I heard the moment of transition, actually, <laughs> when he just said this, and then the interviewer said, you've just equated. So, no, I didn't. I, I didn't. And then I think he went on the next thing and had to try and make it clear 
he was already aware that this was not working, that he wasn't. You're absolutely right. So he was evolving his metaphors um, very carefully. Well, actually, not very carefully, desperately, in fact, um, even as the thing happened. My my advice to ministers when they're asked questions is to try and think what the actual answer is. And if Brandon Lewis clearly doesn't think Boris Johnson should resign, um, otherwise he would have said so, right? Uh, Or he's decided not to say so. And what he should think about is why do I not think that? And then try and share as much as he possibly can the genuine reason. I think there are quite a lot of Conservative MPs who think (laughs) this... um, these fines are uh, deliberately designed as non-criminal sanctions. Uh, there's their fixed penalty notices. Unless you challenge them, if you challenge them, you get a criminal offence. Um, and they're designed precisely like that in order that people don't resign. And most people who have these in public, in private life, wouldn't have to resign, right? If um, whereas, for example, if it was a criminal sanction, if you were a policeman or a lawyer, you would have to resign. Now that is an argument. I don't accept that argument because he's Prime Minister uh, and he made these laws. I don't accept that argument. Uh, but at least he, if that is what they think, then it has a degree of... Um, you know, it's, it's an arguable point, right? Uh, which yeah, is, but he does but, but Brandon Lewis doesn't think uh, he should... Or rather, Brandon Lewis can't doesn't think he can go on a programme and say Boris Johnson should resign because if he did... He'd have to resign. No, Brandon no, no. Lewis would have to resign. Correct. Uh, so he can't say that. So he can't think that. So he has to proceed from the thing that he can think, because otherwise, if he thinks yeah, anything else true. publicly, he has to he, ha- he has to take the consequences. That's, true. that's on. So he w- so we know he's bound to that position. He then has to. So what you've what, so what you've done is give him a better a slightly better argument, uh, really, than he could think up himself. That's why they, which is why, frankly, you're on this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, there's some so, some some poor soul is sitting in Brad Lewis's office this morning saying, "Yeah, no, I thought it went really well," while quietly admitting he hadn't heard. <laughs> That's it. right. And but, then Brandon Lewis, yeah, exactly. Did you hear it? No, but, but it su- was really good. I suppose to some extent, what we're putting our finger on, uh, Danny, is is the concept of certainly in the position of uh, Brandon Lewis, cabinet responsibility, that that he has to go out and argue to some extent, black is white, or at least black is not even a colour or whatever it is he's trying or you know we shouldn't be talking about black there's a wall on or whatever he you know um because that's his his job because actually it yeah. is possible and i don't know because i've not spoken to him about it it is possible that brandon lewis does think boris johnson should it's, resign it's not in my view i do not think this i think that it was i think it is proportionate for the prime minister to resign i think he's broken the ministerial code i think that it should be a resigning offence for him to do that just to be clear it is not preposterous to argue it's disproportionate that is the one arg- i think the war argument is ridiculous um i think i think the argument that it's not a, that it's not really an offence is ridiculous uh, it was um the argument that he didn't know what he was doing that's also ridiculous it's not ridiculous to say, um, I think that uh, it was a bad thing to do this, but not a resigning matter. He's the leader of my government, and, I don't, and, and I'm content with an apology. That, that, that would be at least an argument that had some sort of intellectual... Um, merit. merit. <laughs> uh, the, yeah, the yeah. only problem with that argument, and, and, and it's a pretty fatal one, is that it doesn't deal with the question of what he said to Parliament. Yeah. Uh, his answer, his answer is, I did mislead Parliament, but it wasn't deliberate. Uh, however, what he didn't do, uh, which the Ministerial Code also requires him to do, is take a, enough trouble to ensure that he was telling the truth. So much, so little trouble did he take that we all realised at the time it was absurd. Um, and uh, <laughs> therefore, either he knew that 
or he ought to have known it and didn't know it. Uh, either of those things are, are resigning matters. And the, the, the problem is the reason that anybody ties themselves up in knots is because Boris Johnson knew when he said it, it was a compli- you know, he was trying to pull a fast one. And now when you start trying to pull this out... It's certainly my conclusion yes. that he did know that. And so yes. everyone then is tying themselves up in the in sort of each other's knots because the starting point was, was mad. Well, we'll see, we'll see if, if his... Um, if his justification evolves or, or not later on when he makes his statement to, uh, to Parliament this afternoon. Right, let's turn our attention now to uh, Vickers. Uh, <laughs> two of our great national institutions, the Conservative Party and the Church of England, have been falling out, uh, this time over the policy of sending asylum seekers to Rwanda. Um, is it a problem, uh, Danny, for uh, senior Conservatives to get into a slanging match with the Archbishop of Canterbury? Um, well, it, would, it wouldn't be a problem if they were right. Um, uh, I, I think I think that the Archbishop of Canterbury is more nearly right than they are. The reason why I say more nearly right is I, I do actually think um, the the, uh, the Home Secretary is aiming to try to solve a problem that does require resolution. I just don't think the resolution she's picked is an acceptable one for various different reasons, which you've already discussed. Um, I don't think... Um, I think, by the way, uh, it can be a difficulty for the Conservative Party to ha- to fall out with the Archbishop of Canterbury for both of them. For the Conservative Party, they're obviously falling out with a major moral uh, leader in the country. For the Archbishop of Canterbury, he's probably falling out with quite a lot of his members. If you think who the people are were probably most likely to support the policy, uh, it'll be older... Um, white people living in um, in kind of uh, home counties and that's quite a lot of his congregation <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so um, he uh, that that you know to, it's not a, it's not an easy thing position for him to take um, but uh, I, I think probably the political consequences of them falling out with the Archbishop of Canterbury, I mean, it's been going on for so long that the Conservative Party's fallen out with the Church of England it's no longer a huge uh, political mover, I guess. Um, yeah. More serious is both morally and politically. Is the question of whether they're right. Um, David, the thing that strikes me about this is I'm not remotely religious, and yet um, you know you sort of think, oh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, that's interesting. And part of me then thinks, why is it interesting? <laughs> why why do I think that, that is significant? The Archbishop of Canterbury is not happy, given that I'm I'm not remotely religious. That's very pious of you. <laughs> um, I have to say that I, I put this item down for discussion because it makes me laugh, uh, <laughs> I'm afraid, um, uh, for various reasons which, um, which, which Danny may relate to. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury is a kind of exotic figure for me. Um, uh, and, and I like the idea of an Archbishop of Canterbury, and I do understand that without Archbishops of Canterbury and the Church of England, we wouldn't have lovely cathedrals and so on, or otherwise they're up to keep would be. And uh, <laughs> But it is hilarious when an Archbishop, firstly, to have Conservatives saying you should keep out of politics, when it literally is the British Constitution that bishops sit in the House of Lords alongside Danny, um, etc., to... That's scrutinise our laws. Yeah. That literally is our constitutional <laughs> position. And Conservative MPs... It's, what, they specific, the bishop, about, the job, bishop specifically have to sit next to Danny. I was just thinking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, on, on Danny's lap, actually, quite often. That's right. There's nowhere, there's nowhere else to go. And often has he been draped in uh, unwitting purple. Um, uh, but, but anyway, let, let's, let's lose that image and try and stick to the very unserious point I was making, really, which was... So there's all these Conservative MPs saying we should defend our history, but don't appear to know that our history is why we have these bishops. The second thing is when the Archbishop of Canterbury is literally accused of virtue signalling, 
which is exactly yeah. what Archbishop of Canterbury is there for. I mean, if if it, the Archbishop of Canterbury is not going to signal virtue to us, what on earth is the point? I mean, it's what <laughs> rabbis are for. Danny has been through many more rabbis than I ever have, but that's for certain sure, yeah. doing vast amounts of virtue, virtue signaling. Right. It's what preaching is about. Yeah, I can tell you that Rabbi Aaron Goldstein of... Uh, of the Ark Synagogue in Pinner is not in favour of this policy, I'm sure. I haven't consulted him, but I know what he'll think. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, so, yeah, you're, you're, you're right, David. Um, as a th- that um, The Conservative Party institutionally has been in, in a kind of dispute with the Church of England since the 1980s, really, that, and it, they, the two have sort of um, moved apart. And so probably, uh, to use that dreadful phrase, politically, them falling out with him is priced in um the more important thing is he's giving um a, a projection to a moral position that a lot of people take and i guess when he takes a position that isn't widely held it doesn't have much power um when he takes a position like this that is widely held and the one that he took on on um on payday loans which i was less actually less um supportive of uh that also had a you know lots of people agreed with him and that's mm. why it has resonance so i think it has resonance because uh, actually I think the moral dimension is probably the most important part of the argument about uh, the Rwandan asylum issue. Well, so, yeah, well, let's uh, let's li- leave it there before we... Uh, uh, we don't want to fall out with the... Um, the ch- actually, I was watching, I was watching um, some old episodes of The Vicar with Dibley at the weekend, and there's an episode where the Archbishop of Canterbury turns up, and it's not the... It's, I think it, but it's somebody who looks exactly like Rowan Williams. And for, for quite a long time of watching it, I thought they'd actually got him. Uh, well, maybe that's what they should do. Maybe, maybe Justin Welby needs to turn up in a sitcom. Um, well, Rowan Williams made himself look like God, didn't he? I mean, I always thought that he essentially <laughs> sort of said, like, you know, Michelangelo depicts God. I'm going to look like that, and that's what he looked like. And I really thought, and I think he, I thought he'd look more like an Archbishop of Canterbury should look like than the current one. God doesn't look like Rowan Williams. Let's let, well, more I like don't, Mason Mount. Look, we haven't got time. We haven't got time to discuss what God does and doesn't look like. Text says eight seven trouble two. Start resting the word types. Uh, finally, um, uh, are we getting overexcited about the French presidential election, uh, David? Um, uh, lots of talk about Marine Le Pen. Is this is this is this just the commentary act trying to whip up excitement yeah, well, about something which is a foregone conclusion? Before the first, before the first round, there was a, there was a, a couple of polls that suggest there was a two point lead for uh, Macron in the final round and so on. Uh, and there were just these couple of polls. By and large, the polls have all shown him up to eight points ahead and possibly even more. But on the basis of those polls, we've seen a kind of explosion of what Marine Le Pen would mean for this and what Marine Le Pen would, would mean for that and so on. So talks about the crisis in France. And by the way. There's never a time when France isn't in crisis, and that's including the French always believe that France is in crisis, over Algeria, 1968, etc. Constantly, the French are in crisis and so on, and we like that image. Um, And so I'm really going to fall, I'm going to do something I never, ever, ever do, because I hate predictions. But I think all this is for the birds, because I think Macron is going to win relatively easily. Yes. Now, if I'm wrong, come back and... We will, but we'll deal with that. David, is that not a problem, though, that that, that uh, more than 40% of people are contemplating for, to vote for voting for her, um, both from um, the far right and parts of the far left which join up with the far right. Uh, that kind of, the size of that populist vote must be, uh, you know, very concerning for anyone from an immigrant background living in that country. Well, I, I agree. Of course, you're right about that. But it's worth remembering that the French in the last uh, 30 years or so have come to hate their presidents and don't re-elect them. 
Um, so actually, Macron is, you could argue, by being re-elected, will break something of a recent mould. Yeah. And actually, if, the, if everyone does assume that he's going to win, then actually you get a free hit to vote. You know, somebody else will vote for him, so I'll vote for the, for the not Macron rather than the pro-Le Pen. Daniel Finkelstein and David Ivanovich then. Of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, our big thing is what the new term at Westminster holds. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. Yes, yes, yes. It's back to school time for MPs after quite the Easter holiday. So the Prime Minister heading straight to detention after being fined for, well, naughty behaviour. He will apologise to the whole class in the Commons a bit later. But let's look at some of his other subjects. He got a head start on geography the, uh, last week, travelling to Kiev to meet Vladimir Zelensky and Ukrainian forces. But he's a bit behind on religious studies after the government uh, faced criticism from uh, religious leaders, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, for his plans to offshore migrant processing to Rwanda. And there's lots and lots of homework to be done as the parties start their campaign for the local elections. And we've got a by-election coming up in Wakefield too. So lots to look forward to into the next parliamentary term. So make sure your shirt's tucked in, your skirt is rolled down to the right length, and my tie is it my fault I'm not wearing a tie at all, which is going to get me into trouble for our first lesson. So let's head into the uh, Times Radio staff room, uh, where we're going to look ahead to the... <laughs> It's already a slightly tortuous metaphor, this. Uh, we're heading into the Times Radio staff room uh, to look ahead to the forthcoming term. Times Radio's chief political commentator, Ms Lucy Fisher, is here. How are you? Hello, sir. Nice to see you. Very good. And helping us crunch the numbers on uh, the electoral maths, Professor Sir John Curtis from the University of Strathclyde is here as well. Good morning, John. Good morning, sir. Ah, oh, well, that's the bell. So let's head straight to double maths. And we're going to crunch the numbers on the electoral maths first of all, John. Uh, What are the polls telling us and how can... I mean, is it possible for Boris Johnson to make the maths add up uh, ahead of those local elections? Yes and no is the answer to that, Matt. Um, If we take the four polls that have now been conducted since the announcement of the Prime Minister's fine, um, Labour 
are averaging an eight-point lead. Labour's vote seems to be up a couple of points. Conservatives down a point. Not dramatic, but it's widened out from the five-point lead that was there um, immediately beforehand. Now, that sounds pretty bad for the government, but we should remember that the local elections were the seats that, for the most part, that are up for grabs in England, at least, were last fought over in 2018. Now, that's the dim and distant past. But to remind you, we need a bit of a history lesson here. This is a year after Theresa May uh, held a general election and failed to get an overall majority uh, and when she was trying to negotiate a Brexit treaty with the European Union. But uh, much of the impetus had fallen out of the government. Now, in those local elections, even though, of course, it was Jeremy Corbyn on the other side, um, Conservative Labour roughly neck and neck in the polls and their local election performance more or less matched that. Now, sure, given the Labour the Tories are uh, four points be, uh, eight points behind, that's about a 4% swing that we might expect to find uh, in the local elections, which will certainly result in uh, some Conservative losses. But here we have to remember a couple of other things about the local elections. The first is that they take place disproportionately in Labour territory. That, of course, includes London, which is largely these days a one-party state. There are only seven Conservative-controlled uh, uh, councils in London out of 32. While outside of London, in most places, only one-third of the seats are up for grabs, which means that, therefore, the opportunities for changes of control are rather limited. And once you kind of go th look through, yes, there are one or two places we can talk about. Wandsworth and Barnet, obviously, in London. The Conservatives are vulnerable outside Newcastle-under-Lyme, Southampton. But we are kind of talking probably no more than the fingers of two hands when it comes to the numbers of places where the Conservatives are likely to lose control in England. So, John, does it then become a case of it doesn't really matter what the numbers are or, you know, whether it's in terms of polling or actual seats in councils. It's just does it end up feeling the morning after the elections that they are bad enough for some Conservative MPs to react? And actually, we won't know what that threshold is until the morning after. Yes, and frankly, it will also depend on the ability of the various parties to succeed in getting uh, their narrative across. Now, it has to be said that actually uh, comparing with 2018 is not the only thing we can do with these local elections. We can actually, in most places, including in practice in London, actually compare what happens this year with what happened last year, not in terms of seats changed, not in terms of council's control, but literally in terms of votes cast. So there will be other information out there that perhaps will make it clearer the extent to which the Conservatives' fortunes are weaker now than they were 12 months ago. And 12 months ago, you know, they were riding pretty high. Uh, Sir Keir Starmer got the rebuff of the Hartlepool by-election with some pretty disappointing uh, local election results. Um, and with that, and but all, throughout, throughout, it will be important to remember that, um, uh, you know, the comparison, the real comparison, of course, is with December 2019, when the Conservatives were 12 points ahead. Um, and it certainly seems very unlikely that we're going to be uh, matching anything like that. But then it will, it will frankly then depend how this mix of evidence, uh, which will be available to us, uh, how the parties ma manage to uh, turn around, and in a sense, how the various uh, parts of the Conservative Party uh, manage to interpret and promote their point of view as to whether or it does or does not indicate differences to the Prime Minister. 
Uh, just finally, John, let's just turn it completely on, it, on its head. Given where we are, given what's happened, the Prime Minister's become, as Labour MPs love telling us, uh, the first sitting Prime Minister to be fined for breaking the law in office. Uh, the cost of living crisis is raging uh, right across the country. Energy bills, uh, food bills are up. Uh, given that, in all of that as the background to this, shouldn't the Labour Party be doing much better? Yeah, I think that's a perfectly reasonable uh, proposition indeed. Uh, even at 41%, which Labour are currently at, it's only slightly above what was their all-time, what, what they were achieving back in the autumn of 2020 before the vaccine rollout. Um, and an eight-point lead at this stage in the parliament is not particularly dramatic for an opposition. So I think certainly what it's a, a, a reasonable summary as to where we are at the moment. We've got a government that's in quite considerable trouble Trouble led by a prime minister who was never that never was popular in the way that either Thatcher or Blair was because he was always uh, divided between Leave voters who liked him and Remain voters who didn't. Now that his problem is that many of the Leave voters have lost confidence in him. Um, uh, but where it's not clear as yet that people are necessarily convinced that Labour would do a better job. And the challenge facing Labour is can they convince the electorate? Uh, that indeed things would be better if there were a Labour government. Oh, John, that, uh, the bell means we've run out of time for, for maths. That's, uh, thanks so much for that. That's Professor Sir John Curtis from the University of Strathclyde, crunching the numbers on the electoral maths. Right now, okay, welcome. Okay, thank good you. to speak to you. Thanks so much, John. Uh, right, we head out uh, now to... Uh, we're heading out to the playground where Boris Johnson's in desperate need of some friends, Lucy. Um, uh, Lucy Fisher is here. How... What do you think the mood's going to be like when Boris Johnson meets up with his old pals in the playgrounds of uh, of Westminster today? Well, I'm really hoping, Matt, for some good old-fashioned parliamentary theatre today. I think in large part that's going to depend on uh, whether any staunch Johnson critics among the Tory benches decide to get to their feet and lambast him in this key moment uh, when the Prime Minister's going to have to make his formal apology uh, to the House. I think Downing Street's been clever in the way they're going to package this afternoon. They've rolled up a number of issues into one long statement. So Labour had been demanding that the Prime Minister make separate statements on Ukraine, on the energy strategy that was unveiled during recess and wasn't put to the House previously, and a separate statement on the fixed penalty notice. No, 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 thought the Tory whips. Let, let's just sort of roll that up into one. So I expect it'll be a couple of sentences uh, sandwiched between other issues. Obviously, we know Labour, the Lib Dems, are um, seeking Sir Lindsay Hoyle, the common speaker's permission, to try and um, get through a censor, uh, censor motion today. Bid on the fence about whether that's going to happen. Uh, the vote will be held, but I think it's unlikely that's going to go through. The Tory whipping operation will be fierce. And because uh, when Boris Johnson made his statement earlier in the year, it was a couple of months ago now, when he talked about uh, the fact he was being investigated by the police and made a statement there, I mean, it didn't really matter what he said in the statement. The response across the House was brutal. You know, you had, you know, it was when David Davis stood up. I, I think Andrew Mitchell stood up and said he should go. Theresa May was was uh, very spiky. 2019 MPs were sort of saying, Conservative MPs were saying, you know, I buried my grandmother without a proper funeral, all that sort of stuff, as well as Labour and SNP MPs sticking the boot in. Do you think the fact that we are, as we were just discussing with John, only a few weeks away from local elections, will that temper... Conservative MPs this time round to in terms of going for the Prime Minister in the way they really did actually a couple a couple, a couple of months ago. 
I think it will, um, in large part because many Tory MPs are waiting to see what the outcome of the locals are. If it's a really terrible night for the Conservatives, um, a, a true wipeout, I think that's when we could see the impetus rise to oust Boris Johnson. That said, I think as John Curtis just made clear, it's a slightly difficult perhaps to see with the particular selection of seats um, up for grabs uh, in this round of local elections, it might not be that easy to draw conclusions from it. So at the moment, I feel the main reason we're not hearing from um, Tory MPs is that they went too soon, that, you know, there was that momentum for uh, for a plot. It sort of petered out in part because I think some of the younger, more emotional, less strategic, less experienced MPs among the 2019ers slightly botched it. They went too early. They allowed the whips to kind of get wind of it. Some were bought off, you know, with PPS jobs. Um, and I think that there, there isn't anyone leading um, the rabble now. It's mainly the sort of usual suspects who are speaking out against the Prime Minister. People like Andrew Mitchell, David Davis, who are you know respected former cabinet ministers, but well known to yeah, be uh, not very carrying, critical. They're not carrying a big gang with them. Uh, well, that's the bell. Though. Now, uh, we're going on to a lesson now in economics at the start of the new parliamentary term. Lucy Fisher is still uh, with us. Let's talk um, economics lesson. I mean, Rishi Sunak got a lesson in economics uh, over the past week or so. It turns out people don't like it if the Chancellor is not seen to be playing by the rules, particularly if you're incredibly wealthy. And then he got fined as well. Yeah, it may only have been uh, 50 quid. Not uh, not going to make the wallet too much lighter <laughs> for a multi, multi-millionaire. But certainly he's had a really rough ride for the past two weeks. And I think it's what it's really taught us is just how brittle his character is. He's shown himself to be really uh, deeply affected by his family being criticised. He's said to have been absolutely furious that he himself was given a fine when he wasn't even invited to the birthday gathering in the cabinet room. He just turned up um, ahead of a meeting. I think there's still question marks uh, to my mind about why Simon Case, the cabinet secretary, who was also present, wasn't fined. There's still a sort of slight mystery about the way that the Met is prosecuting this particular investigation. Is it all over for Rishi Sunak? No, I don't think it is all over for Rishi Sunak. I think there is a lot of intrigue in Westminster about whether he will remain in post this summer if the fated July reshuffle comes off. Pretty ominous warning sign that uh, Linton Crosby, the so-called Wizard of Oz electoral guru, is said to have warned Boris Johnson that he is now an electoral liability. So we know from previous experience, prime ministers tend to act on that. That was the move that David Cameron made, um, sacking uh, or at least demoting Michael Gove from Education Secretary when Linton Crosby again warned him the polling looks bad. Well, we've got to move on from economics now. We're heading now to religious studies. Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, and uh, loads of other religious leaders have been criticising the government's plans to offshore migrants, asylum seekers to Rwanda. Talk to the politics of this, Lucy. Is Number 10 at all worried about being criticised by the Archbishop of Canterbury? Well, I think, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury stands for quite traditional um, Middle England values in many ways. I think people will be surprised by the um, strength of his comments using his Easter Day sermon to question the serious um, ethics, uh, ethical issues raised by the Rwandan policy. I think yesterday, Rowan Williamson, his uh, predecessor as Archbishop of Canterbury, went even further with John Pienaar, um outright calling the policy sinful. So while it's, uh, while I think many people in the Conservative Party in Downing Street think it's priced in that left-wingers, people who would normally vote Labour, the Liberal Democrats, won't like this policy, I think it is pretty serious that the spiritual leaders uh, of this country are coming out so forcefully against the government on a matter of policy. 
One interesting thing while we're talking, uh, Redfield and Wilton Strategies, one of the uh, one of the pollsters, just put out some new polling on uh, Pretty Patel. Uh, her polling rating has jumped upwards. Uh, her, I mean, from a let's be honest, a low base. Uh, she was on minus thirty nine points, and now she's up to minus thirty. Which actually, compared to where she has been in recent times, that you know maybe that has had an impact. That some people think, well, at least she is doing something on the. Uh, and actually, her her challenge to to critics of well, what would you do instead? Well, I think that is quite effective. And you know, the government has shown it's been talking for two two years and more about trying to grip this challenge without any success. She's put forward a slew of um, increasingly far fetched ideas, ranging from wave machines to hosting migrants on disused oil rigs uh, out at sea. So I think it looks positively um, generous to offer you know warm, dry on land accommodation in some ways. Oh, there goes the bell again. Right, we're heading to English now. Uh, and uh, in English, let's talk about the government's levelling up plan. Uh, it never really got going. I mean, you know, the metaphor's being stretched quite thin now. Uh, but uh, levelling up, I mean, it's one of those things, it's supposed to be one of the major planks of Boris Johnson's government. He's got a whole department named after it. Ultimately, his hopes of electoral success at the next general election is going to depend on delivering on some of this stuff. It's all got a bit quiet, isn't it? Well, it has. And I'm quite glad you uh, you labelled levelling up under English because it is basically a branding exercise that what's, you know, regional growth strategy that, you know, governments immemorial uh, yeah. have had this century um, has been given this um, overhaul, but basically in name only. Uh, you know, with uh, with George Osborne, we had the Northern Powerhouse. Now it's levelling up. I do think there were some good ideas talked about uh, at the beginning of this parliament before the sort of pandemic took hold. The problem is there's no money in the coffers. You know, soaring inflation means that the cost of servicing public debt is rocketing. There just isn't the kind of money available for major infrastructure problems, uh, infrastructure projects that would underscore this. Um, And you're right, Matt, I think that there will be um, potentially a big lacuna uh, in this whole program by the time we get to the next election, which will prompt the question, what is this government for? What is Johnsonism? I think he was relying heavily on Michael Gove to come up with the goods, um, a real vision to underpin his administration. And that just hasn't happened. And I suppose then the question is, uh, if he hasn't delivered on that, and if it's all been very reactive, I mean, there's one thing the government just has not been proactive. It's all, you know, the things it's been remembered for, obviously reacting to the pandemic and people say, well, he got the vaccine, you know, that's a positive thing. Uh, criticism for the reaction to the cost of living crisis if there's nothing proactive then you don't get any you know voters are incredibly ungrateful they don't talk about what you've done they want to know what you're going to do next and if you don't have a record to show that you're capable of doing anything proactive then that becomes a big problem i think that's right i also think another thing to stress is that leveling up is all about focusing on the red wall seats of the north and midlands and it's a slight truism in politics that people always um, fight the last war um, when it comes to elections. And there is a danger I'm picking up, certainly concerns among Tory MPs in the traditional shire seats of the South, the South East, the South West, that there's far too much um, emphasis by this government on the North and Midlands when they think that the demographics show that those seats um, are still likely to vote Conservative uh, at the next election. While actually there is a bit of a rearguard action from some of the more liberal um, policies of Labour and certainly the Lib Dems on planning or NIMBYism in some of the traditional Shire Tory seats. So I'll be interested to see if there is a rebalancing on that in, in the months ahead. Well, that's the end of the English lesson. Uh, we are uh, time for geography now. Uh, we're looking we're looking overseas uh, this time round. Uh, Boris Johnson heading to... Um, I was going to say it was a bit of a coup. Coup's the wrong word. But him going to uh, Kiev last week, 
and uh, I mean, as a as a as a PR exercise, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? The the, the reaction from Ukrainians towards Boris Johnson. I mean, actually, much the sort of reaction you used to get when he went on a walkabout in this country, but perhaps not anymore. Well, uh, yes, I think I think there's something to that. It was it was an extraordinary the optics, and it shows how good. Boris Johnson's um, instincts for politics are. We know that the day before he was there, uh, Ursula von der Leyen and Joseph Borrell, the um, EU uh, Commission Chief and the Foreign Policy Spokesman for the bloc, uh, also paid a visit to Kiev, but it was much more tightly controlled. And Boris Johnson does like to take risks. He did. He was willing, um, you know, to go out on the streets of Kiev for 30 minutes, not knowing who he was going to meet. He could have been petitioned um, by someone angry at the West or the UK not doing enough, as it was. Um, he came across people, you know, very thankful for all that the UK is doing. And I think week by week, there are new details of how Britain is stepping up its support. Last In recent weeks, it was the armoured personnel carriers. Today, we hear that the um, Stormer armoured missile launchers are being sent to Ukraine. So I think he's doing a good job in positioning Britain at the forefront of the Western reaction. And I had about three or four different versions of the email with the subject from the Tory HQ with the subject line, my visit to Kiev. Uh, you know, that clearly the Conservative Party think that, you know, this is one of the most positive things that's happened to Boris Johnson for a long time and they want to keep on having home that message. On the subject of geography, a bit closer to home, what's number 10's feeling about the French elections? Well, I think everyone in Westminster is watching it really closely. Obviously, no secret that there's no love lost between Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron. In another sense, though, they're useful bogeymen to each other. You know, they have these set-piece rows over fishing licences, despite fishing being, you know, only a tiny part of either nation's economy. I think given the Ukraine, you know, geopolitical crisis, the idea of Le Pen winning uh, on Sunday is incredibly worrying, given what she said about withdrawing France from NATO's command structure. I think economically as well, she's obviously very protectionist. It would be a new level of potential economic warfare with France if she got in. So I know that there is relief that the polling at the moment looks like Macron is going to sweep it, but um, it's not quite clear enough in the polls to, to let everyone breathe a, breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, there goes the bell again. Right, now we're heading to uh, history. Boris Johnson, of course, is one of his favourite subjects, history, in our, uh, our tour of the, uh, the timetable on the, uh, the first day of the new parliamentary term. Uh, what do you think history tells us about how all this could go for Boris Johnson uh, and you know his place in history? I mean, he's made history by becoming the first prime minister to be charged to be, to receive a fine. Obviously, not being charged. Don't start texting. Uh, to receive a fine for breaking the law, um, can he get out of this? I mean, history tells us you know don't write Boris Johnson off. I've done it several times and it's been proved to be wrong. But you know, ultimately, does it, at some point does his luck run out? Well, it hasn't so far, has it? I mean, so often in his both personal and professional life, he's squeezed out of difficult situations. He's now got this nickname, the greased piglet, because he's become so slippery. But I do think that there is a long litany um, of former prime ministers who've been ousted from office after losing the confidence or testing the patience of their parliamentary colleagues, whether that's Churchill, Eden, Thatcher, Blair, Cameron, and of course, Theresa May most recently. I do think he needs to win back the confidence of his backbenchers. To me, it feels that there's there's stasis. It's a bit of a pause at the moment. We saw that over the Easter recess when the vast majority of Tory MPs preferred not to comment on uh, him his fixed penalty notice. And I know that because I probably tried to get hold of about 100 <laughs> of them who told me that they were, they were busy on their holidays or keeping their head down. Um, so I, I think that there is 
People are waiting to see what happens. If he's an electoral asset, they'll keep him. The Tory party, known for its pragmatism, backing winners, it can stomach a lot if it thinks that people, its leaders will, will lead them into victory. But I think the jury is still, still out. He's not out of the water yet. And, and actually, the idea that he is some extraordinary election-winning, vote-winning machine is just not borne out by... The fact, I mean, it was extraordinary, what, you know, to have won an 80-seat majority. It was against Jeremy Corbyn at a time of massive national constitutional crisis to deliver Brexit. That was not in normal times. If you look at his polling now, his polling's terrible. It's some of the worst polling of any sitting prime minister in recent times. Well, that that is certainly true. Um, I'm interested to see what his new Downing Street operation might do in terms of the polling. I think David Canzini, his new deputy chief of staff, is a really key figure from the Linton Crosby School of getting the barnacles off the boat, streamlining and prioritising. And I think we're going to see a much more political government when it comes to the next parliamentary session, for example. I think the, the sort of bills, the legislative agenda that will be laid out in the Queen's speech will be much more focused with an eye on the next election. And Boris Johnson, sure, his, his his polling isn't great at the moment, but having won such a frankly stunning majority of 80 seats back in December 2019 means however good Labour is now, it's just the parliamentary maths is really difficult to try and win a majority in one fell swoop. Well, there we are. Oh, there goes the bell. There goes the bell. We finally got to the end of the school day. Uh, that's Lucy Fisher, uh, the Times Radio's chief political correspondent, taking us commentator, taking us through uh, the forthcoming parliamentary term. We also heard from uh, John uh, Curtis, Professor John Curtis, crunching the electoral maths. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.